we had won by 130,000 votes, but we had registered 160,000 new Democrats to vote. And that for me was the moment where I was like, oh, we did this. If we hadn't registered those voters, if we hadn't persuaded, turned out those voters, we may have not won in Colorado. And you look at the margins across all the battleground states, they were thin. And so that was the moment for me where I was like, oh, actually, this is work that makes a difference. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Kurt Bagley, who's founder of the organizing firm BFD Strategies. Kurt was national organizing director for Biden for president in 2020. Before that, he was national field director at the DCCC. He was part of this podcast in that role, discussing the DCCC's use of the team app in 2018, back in episode 235. We caught up now about 2018, 2020, and his foray into political entrepreneurship with BFD strategies. If you're interested in national level Democratic Party organizing, you should listen. So after a word from our sponsor, my interview with Kurt Bagley with BFD Strategies. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Kurt. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. It's great to be back here. It's good to see you again and, and good to be chatting with you. Yep. In 2018, you were at the DCCC, and we talked a little bit about relational organizing. Catch me up by telling me how the rest of that uh, campaign went from your perspective for a start. Yeah. I mean, 2018 was, you know, clearly we had a good result um, in the election. And, um, you know, I look back and and the team that we had built at the DCCC, you know, starting with Dan Senna, was just such a special team and such a special unit. 2018 was just really magical in terms of having a great team. A lot of us had been working together, you know, for two cycles in a row. And I think it's one of the most effective organizations I've ever been a part of. Um, and when you look at at the results and 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 the margin of victory, I can't remember the exact numbers, but you know, ahead of the cycle, we needed to win. I think it was twenty four seats. Um, we picked up that Connor Lamb seat, and we needed twenty three. I think when all the votes were counted, we we won twenty four seats by within a field margin, and um, so you know, three points or less. And so that was really you know uh, special for for me in terms of. Um, you know, just an experience to be a part of, you know, such a high functioning operation. But, you know, I was really proud of our entire field operation, you know, every member of it for really building, you know, hard, challenging programs. We did as much as we could in-house. Um, so, 
you know, which presented a, a, a challenge as well. We made every dollar go as far as possible, but we were able to execute a historic amount of voter contact in the field. And, you know, we also, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't also, you know, credit all of the volunteers and activists across the country. In most cycles on the congressional level, you don't have a ton of volunteers who are getting involved. I was on Ron Barber's race as the field director in 2014. And, you know, we had, you know, a couple hundred active volunteers and, you know, a smaller number than that that were, you know, showing up on a week to week basis. Um, but I think it was, you know, either New Jersey three or New Jersey seven, um, where, you know, on election day in 2018, we had something like a thousand volunteers show up. And it's like, we only had like 400 packets in the entire district. Or I'm making these numbers up, but th those were the kind of things that were happening on election day in 2018. There was the video that went viral on Twitter in Staten Island and for Max Rose's seat. And there was a line around the block of people trying to go in to get packets. And so, you know, there was an incredible volunteer enthusiasm. We had an incredible team at the D-Trip. Um, we worked incredibly hard to, to make our resources as efficient as possible. And, um, and it was all, you know, the right things, which is why we were able to have such historic results. So I, I, I was in particularly proud of that experience and it, and it worked out really well. And you were the national field director from that seat. How do you know? I mean, you talk about the field margin and maybe that you can make a difference of a couple points. How do you know that you made a difference and how much? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and and. You know, being the national field director, I will tell you that there are a lot of things that I know about field and politics. And there are a lot of things that I don't know. The way that a vote is earned, um, you know, I think people can can look back and they say, oh, this person digested, you know, this piece of media or, or this or that or got these conversations. But it's really hard to discern, like, what was the motivating factor that turned the, this group of people out, et cetera. And I know there's you know a lot of good tests and studies um, with control groups and and, you know, what was the most effective. But you know, in some of these competitive races, we're not, most of these competitive races, we're not doing the testing. So it's hard to take credit for it. And I just did. Um, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of credit to go around to a lot of different people. When we look at, um, you know, some of these races and we look at the kinds of programs we need to build, you know, it's very simple. You know, we'll, we'll take a universe that we think we need to persuade a certain amount of people and we build a program and we go have those conversations and we look at the support IDs that are coming through. We obviously are trying to increase those rates as much as possible. We're looking at the turnout universe, looking at the group of people that we need to, um, you know, treat, make sure we get them some voter education and keep chasing them to return their ballot, chase them to go to early vote. It's hard for me to look back and say, you know, in any particular race, we, you know, definitively moved X group to go vote. The way that we approached it is, is we have this group of voters, this finite group of voters, and we are going to maximize our, our conversations with those people to the point where, you know, as we're talking to them, if they're in our persuasion universe, that we're shrinking that number of undecideds and turning them into supporters as much as we can, um, or if they're turnout targets, that we're, we're pushing them to go vote as much as we can and, and making it easy for them to do so. I think we were really effective in that without getting into like some of the numbers. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about um, the jungle primary in 2018, where, um, you know, our, our goal was to get Harley Ruda through the primary. And you're familiar with the jungle primary system. Our polling and our indication had us in fourth place. Um, and, you know, we uh, we were sitting out about three or four weeks. And the theory was that if we didn't get Harley Ruda through, we'd have a hard time winning in the general election. And there was a good chance that another Republican would have boxed us out. 
So I went out with with Anatole Jenkins, who was our deputy field director and then our GOTV director, and um, Jennifer Sosa, who was our our field desk for the West. And we went to California and we spent two or three weeks um, just like driving persuasion conversations um, for that primary and then making sure that any Ruta supporters were were turning in their ballots. And we just did like the old fashioned like grassroots field operation. We ended up getting Harley Ruta through by 100 votes. And um, and we probably spent, you know, somewhere between like two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand dollars on just like programs to get the right people to turn out. And and we were also encouraging, you know, folks to go vote for other Democrats as well. We just wanted to lift, you know, Democratic turnout. But, you know, specifically, we're trying to give an edge to Harley. And he was able to get through by 100 votes. And then he beat Dana Rohrabacher handily in, in, in the general election. And it's those experiences where, you know, we were so tactical about what were the programs we need to run? What were the instances where we need to needed to leverage our money? And we were able to get things through by 100 votes here, 700 votes there. And it was those decisions and those programs that I think, you know, on the on the aggregate were the ones that helped us take the house. So at least from the field perspective, and there are a lot of other perspectives that you can take on this. One of them is like 2018 is the is a Trump midterm when a good portion of the country is pretty horrified by their president and pretty motivated to get out our side. It is easier in a year like that to recruit candidates or to have them step forward. It is easier to get out voters and have them vote. Right. And yet politics doesn't just happen without organizations like the DCCC and other allies taking advantage of those moments and making them better than they would be without the work. That's kind of what the professional side of politics is. We have a midterm coming up, which is kind of the flip of that, right? We have a part of the country which has been led to believe that their president got his office stolen from him. They appear to believe that to a scary extent that doesn't like having a Democrat in the White House, that doesn't like having Democrats governing federally. And maybe even more than that is, you know, still facing difficulties with COVID, difficulties with the economy recovering. And so the political battlefield is tilted the other way in most people's estimation. What lessons do you have from being on the good side of a wave for, for say, people at the D-trip and elsewhere who are now fighting a similar battle with similar decisions, but with the table tilted a bit differently? You know, I'm just thinking about 2016 for a second, too, where where I think Democrats globally thought it was going to be a better cycle than it was. It wasn't. And still the DCCC, we were able to take like six or seven seats um, in that cycle. And I think, you know, why I bring that up is because, yeah, I mean, it, it feels as though, you know, the pendulum has swinged. It feels as though... It's you know, a little more like 2010 or 2014. Or, yeah. We hope not, but it course, could yeah. could be. It, yeah, and that definitely seems to be, you know, a lot of the feeling that's out there. Um, but, you know, I bring up 2016 because, uh, you know, I, we, we could have a cycle like that, too. Even though, you know, the, the pendulum has swung, as you mentioned, and, and there's a lot of enthusiasm on the other side. And it seems like that's where a lot of the activism is is happening now. I still think what it comes down to is some of those like really, really core fundamentals and tactics and hopefully the DCCC and the DSCC and all their candidates, 
you know, are really executing at a high level to keep their focus on what's important. And, and that's, you know, having, you know, a good candidate that um, matches the, the message and the district, engaging with people who are on all sides, being able to, to consolidate democratic turnout and, and, you know, appeal to the moderates and, and, um, and even some conservatives in those districts and run effective grassroots campaigns and create urgency. Because I, I think that a lot of the difference between right now and, and, um, 2014 or 2016 is that, you know, we had this massive movement over 2018 and 2020. Our memory shouldn't be that far removed. And there is a, a threat of, you know, a, a, a Trump, um, you know, getting back into the race, et cetera. So my hope is that, you know, activists will realize what's at stake again, um, that our campaigns on the congressional side, on the Senate side are going to be laser focused on, you know, what the most important tactics are for them. We're going to have to make sure that we're protecting you know, important seats and, and making sure that we can win in places where we can win. So, I mean, I, I think it's just a matter of sticking to the fundamentals and, and, um, and, you know, being smart on a campaign by campaign basis. And I think, you know, that the team that's out there is really good. We have a lot of, um, great campaign staff that are out there. They know how to win. Um, and so we're, you know, hoping that that's, that's what's going to happen is we can steal some seats in spite of what the narrative is nationally. So. And in spite of having a bunch of incumbents that are actually not running. Exactly. Exactly. After this good year at the D trip, you moved to the Biden campaign. How did you hook up with them as their national organizing director? And what is that? Yeah. Um, well, I did. So I, I, so yeah, I mean, it, crazy ride, crazy, crazy ride. Um, but a lot of fun and and was a great time. And obviously, we were successful. After 2018, I was, you know, sitting at home like campaign workers do, especially field people waiting to, to get, you know, that phone call. And there were a few candidates that I was really interested in working with. And I had talked with a couple of them. And but Biden to me was kind of it was kind of always the number one because I was like, I, I, I really resonated with, um, you know, Biden's story. And I remember him coming to Utah, where I'm originally from. And anything like 2010 or 2011. And it was a fundraiser for the reelect. And he talked about, you know, the tragedies that his family had faced. And I'd had, you know, a similar tragedy in my family that year. And, uh, and so there was something that I just really connected with him. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that a lot of people connect with him on is, is just so personable and has shared his experiences. And I think a lot of people relate with that. And so I had always had a really fond of opinion of him. I thought that he had had been um, a great vice president. I thought that he had a good chance of, of winning the primary in the general election. So I was like, if, if there is a chance that Biden's campaign calls me and that's the thing, like, I'm going to take that. So it was like already set in my mind. Lo and behold, I got some cryptic emails because I think that's how these things start. Um, and um, one was from, you know, our, our deputy campaign manager, Pete Cavanaugh, and I had a great conversation with him. And we talked about field and I was pleased that I was talking with somebody that thought about um, field in the same way that that I did and was curious about how we did things in 2018. And so, uh, you know, conversations went about a month and got invited on, I think like the Monday before we started, of course, that's how it always goes. And it was one of the, the day one folks. Uh, I think we started like April 15th. So we're coming up on a few years now. But yeah, and then we just immediately started building it. So and then and then the primary commenced. So yeah, that's how it happened. It didn't really appear like Biden had a winning campaign during the early part of the primary, pre-South Carolina, really. What were you thinking uh, when you were in his operation? 
I push back on you. 100% it was a winning campaign. And that's exactly what we did. So, um, let's, so no put it, let's, let's put it this way. There were a lot of voters and activists hunting for somebody else, despite the vice president of the United States yeah. running. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I forgot about <laughs> and he, that. And, and he did not, if I remember right, he did not carry any of the first uh, three states. So are, he, you know, not, I, not necessarily. Um, so <laughs> he, he, did, he did not No, but, um, uh, but look, I, I do think we, it doesn't he, matter. He won. Yeah, but, I no, mean, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, the campaign was very good. I, in, 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 you know, honestly speaking, the campaign was very good. There were a lot of good individuals who were on that campaign leading it. I think the challenge that we had was the same challenge that a lot of presidential candidates had and that you have an incredibly wide democratic field of candidates. So all the activists are, they're trying to find who their person is. All those activists are spread between all 20 or, or however many campaigns you have donors who are spread apart. Most people are looking to be inspired in the Democratic primary, and typically the person with the most um, history and experience may not be the most inspiring, inspiring because they're, they're not new, they're not, they're not flashy or anything like that. And at the same time, everyone has a high expectation for how he would do. And so for any of our successes, we never were recognized you know, for our successes. We were always, it was hard to meet expectations for us as a campaign. So I would say we had, we did have a good campaign. We had a great campaign and, um, but it was a challenging primary and there were a lot of other really good campaigns and, and it was competitive. And I think, and I, and it's good that it was competitive. It's good when we have competitive democratic primaries. Our strategy was we were going to do the best that we could in the first four States. And we knew that we would have, you know, substantial, um, substantial support in South Carolina and, and, and the Southern States. And, um, and we worked as hard as we could to get the best possible performance in Iowa and New Hampshire and, and Nevada. And, and, you know, I think our, the second place that we got in Nevada, just barely over Mayor Pete and Senator Warren was, you know, really hard fought and, and helped to reassure a lot of voters and, and donors that we were still, you know, in it. And, um, and we were always still in it, even though we did not take first in all the States, there were a lot of, you know, hard fights and, and victories within them that, uh, that helped us get to where we needed to go for the course of the primary. And then of course, you know, Super Tuesday had a, you know, excellent, um, uh, performance there and so on. So, you know, that, that's kind of my take on, on, on the primary and the trajectory of how it all happened. So, so what does a national organizing director for the Biden campaign do? What was on your plate? What was it your job to make happen and how did you do that? Yeah. And, and that, that, um, that, you know, changed over the course of, of the cycle. So, you know, initially my job was to build out, um, the organizing and, and, um, you know, the digital organizing operations for the primary, um, in, you know, the first four states and, and nationally. And that's very simple. Um, so, you know, just built out the national department and then built the ind individual state teams, et cetera. But then I think like what the really big focus was making sure that, that in Iowa and Nevada, we had really good caucus programs. And that was a large part of my work. And in New Hampshire and South Carolina that we had good primary field programs. So, yeah. And then in the last, you know, couple months, I spent, you know, personally myself on the ground in Iowa working with the organizing team and working with the entire state team to refine the, the caucus program as much as possible. And then I went over to Nevada for the last kind of two and a half week scramble and, and did the same thing there and really working on the caucuses. I mean, that's where the primary is happening. And so I spent a lot of time on, on, on those. And then as the campaign shifted, we kind of shifted to the late primary. In the late primary, we had not built out our state operations yet. So we kind of built we kind of put all of our organizing team that were in the states. And this was also 
you know, overlapping with the timing that COVID hit, we kind of made it one like national organizing team. You know, that was really different because then everybody was kind of like reporting up to me in this structure where nobody had like really specific geographic turf. And we were constantly just running programming, uh, really like calling out to, you know, our supporters and, and voters just to check in on them as the pandemic started. And we did a lot of work like that to really just engage and talk with our base and and make sure people were okay and, and start giving people, you know, small actions to take and, and just keeping them engaged with the campaign in the beginning of the pandemic, which just so happened to be kind of the end of the primaries that was winding down. And as we were doing general election planning, um, and then in the general election work to build out uh, the state organizing operations, the state, you know, uh, coordinated campaigns, um, and then helped them to shape their programming um, and do their their voter contact work in the battleground state specifically. Um, and you know, uh, so that that's like in a nutshell, kind of what I did on the campaign over the course of eighteen uh, or more grueling months of it. Yeah, I, I I bet it was grueling, and I I bet you had to put out quite a lot of energy. My sense from quite on the outside in the primary was that there were other campaigns that were better funded early on that that had deeper and broader organizing efforts in Iowa and probably New Hampshire, but that you know you guys did what you could with what you had. It makes me kind of wonder how much do these organizing operations matter versus like what the candidates are doing and saying and how they're being received how do you think about that? You can do the best operation that you can afford and that you can inspire people to do, but you're kind of at the mercy of what your candidate can do and how they're being received. How did you feel about like things from that perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's exactly right. It's both things. Like a winning campaign is one where, you know, the candidate is doing their job, motivating people and inspiring people to get engaged with their campaign. That's the single most important thing. Because as you mentioned, your organizing program doesn't actually matter if people, you know, don't want to show up or, or don't like your candidate, for lack of a better way of saying it. There's also the flip side of that, where you could have a terrific candidate, but if you can't organize your supporters, then 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 you're not going to win either. And that was really what was interesting about the primary was seeing, you know, there were campaigns that were really well organized, but maybe just the candidate didn't have traction in that state, or they never were able to kind of capture the 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 momentum that they deserved and that's the crazy thing about these primaries is you, you never know which way, what thing that people are just going to grab onto. And I think that's why you see, you know, candidates trying all sorts of different things to to go viral or be interesting or appeal because they're they're just trying to they're trying to 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 get their lightning moment where people grab onto them. You might even have, you know, a candidate that has one of those lightning moments 10 days out from one of these um, primary states, but maybe that's like too early because, you know, four days later, someone else is going to have their kind of spotlight moment. And so, uh, you know, you see, especially in, in, you know, the Democratic primary, you see, and especially, you know, being on the ground in, in a place like Iowa, um, you see really good operations, really well organized campaigns. And like, I, I can tell you that in Iowa on caucus night, um, I think we had a good caucus program, but there were a couple other campaigns that were running circles around every other campaign in terms of their caucus strategy, their precinct captains and 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 what they were doing in the room. And that was just really interesting to see, you know, from the perspective of as a campaign operative, how well thought out some of those operations were. You have to be, have become kind of a connoisseur of organizing, uh, right? 
what were the campaigns that you thought were running circles and what was it about them that that seemed so adept? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, th- th- there were several good ones. Warren's campaign was really good in Iowa. Mayor Pete's was interesting uh, and good. Um, uh, Bernie's certainly had a lot of power and and um, and were really gr- was really great. Um, you know, but th- I just remember that, you know, Mayor Pete's campaign had, you know, those barnstormers. They had people from all over the country who were showing up and escorting people to the, the, the Mayor Pete, you know, uh, preference circle in, in those caucus rooms. And, um, and in addition to that, and I can't remember the exact example, but there were, you know, precinct captains that, that had, you know, all sorts of, they, they knew the rules incredibly well, these precinct captains, and they had all sorts of strategies to, to get people into their corner and to make sure that they were earning that extra delegate. They were figuring out how to eliminate Maybe, and I actually don't remember this exactly, but you know, there, people were also getting into the strategy of how do we make sure that this per, this other candidate that we're worried about is not getting that last delegate. So who is important to to talk to in the caucus room to make sure because they might go to this group or they might go to this group, but it's actually you know way better for us even if they're not coming to our group that they go to some other campaign instead um, because we don't want that candidate to have the extra delegate. Going back to your comment about being an organizing connoisseur. Like my brain, like, I don't remember all these experiences off the top of my head, but, you know, we were living in it for, you know, close to three months living in just caucus world. And my brain was so much into caucus strategy. And I am not going to pretend to be the best person at it because there are a lot of really smart people um, out there who were devising these strategies. And it was really cool to see. But also it was really relieving when it was done. I was like, okay, caucuses are done. I can just focus on elections, which are just way easier. So, um, but it, it, it was honestly really, really fun. I mean, the, the caucuses are, they're, they're grueling, they're hard. They're not the most democratic thing, but, you know, in terms of organizing and strategy, it is totally different than anything you'll ever do, especially in, in the first four states of a democratic presidential uh, primary. And really interesting to see the strategies that some of these really well-organized campaigns take. So. I mean, one of the nice things about Democratic caucuses or primaries is that the other contenders are really on your team, ultimately. There are a lot of candidates that I really liked and very few that I wouldn't have been perfectly happy with. How much were you looking at sort of staff and saying, okay, if we win this nomination, we're going to have to staff up and these are people that I want. Did you pull in, were you able to pull in people that you saw along the way from other campaigns or how much does that happen or did that happen? Yeah. Um, I think maybe you have a small eye towards it. And, you know, as you're recruiting people for the kind of the first, the first go in the primary, um, as you're recruiting people, you're seeing people go to these other campaigns. And so you already have your mind kind of set on good people because everybody's trying to recruit good people to, to run programs. So you kind of have a small eye on it, but at the same time, you have no idea how the primary is going to go. You really are laser focused on making sure that that step one, you there's a campaign to come back to in a few weeks. People are friendly during these primaries. I mean, I, I'm sure there are people that are, you know, a little bit, you know, dramatic, et cetera. But like, you know, I always found people on separate campaigns to be friendly and communicative and making sure that they have good information. And if a candidate ends up exiting the race that they, they, you know, generally people in the democratic space are very good about making sure that their people are taken care of and kind of 
advocating for them to be at the front of the list. Actually, why did, I think that's an interesting question. In addition to that is when it did become time for us to start staffing up for the general election, we now had an abundance of highly qualified people, including our own, that we had to put in kind of critical and high consequence positions. That was another just interesting dynamic of the entire campaign is how do you take both the people who are on our campaign, make sure that they are put in roles of consequence, in states of consequence, et cetera, along with all of these other really great you know, staff. And then also a lot of the state parties had already been building out the coordinated campaigns, shuffling the deck and finding kind of the right recipe of, of people um, and, and, and trying to be as empowering as possible was, was you know, a, ma- a major effort. I would say that that was actually a major effort. More so than just, you know, hey, we have, you know, a role of organizing director. Here are the candidates. That's not really what it was about. It was much bigger than that. So after it became clear that you clinched the nomination, even if you hadn't yet had the convention, it's time to turn your attention to the real opponent. How does your job change in that moment? Yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I think it was different than I think it would in any other presidential election cycle because of COVID. When you think about organizing and field, typically the two most important things you're doing on a presidential campaign is building organizational capacity. So engaging volunteers, building organizational capacity and building your doors program so that your organization can go out and talk to people face-to-face. Traditionally speaking, that's what you do. That's the playbook um, or at least a major part of it. And we had no clue you know, whether doors would ever be on the table again um, in that election cycle. So, you know, we were not just thinking about shifting from primary gear to the general election, but we were thinking about like, at a very fundamental, what are we building? And the answer that we came up with, you know, over the course of a few weeks was, you know, fundamentally, what we're building is not different than what we've built in previous election cycles. We're still building a massive organization of activists and volunteers and building volunteer organizations. It's just the medium in which we're doing it is separate. And so credit to, you know, our organizing directors and and our organizers who really were the ones who who were able to shape what a virtual volunteer team looked like and what a virtual staging location looked like. As we were shifting gears, we were thinking about the model. Um, You know, how are we going to reach out to people? It ended up being a lot of phones, a lot of texts. Um, and, and, you know, we tried things like relational, we ended up knocking, you know, doors at the end and, um, dropping lit and doing some in-person activities, um, et cetera. But in that changeover, before we even started staffing up and getting staff placed, we were thinking about what is our strategy? What do we do in an election cycle where our typical primary form of contact for this department is, is doors? What do we do now? So, that, that was kind of the big shift in my eyes. What were the technologies that underlay the organizing programs that you were in charge of? What vendors, what was built in-house, what worked, what didn't? We did a lot of different stuff in terms of the platforms we used and building in-house. Um, we'd used you know, a number of text programs. We used a couple of different relational programs over the course of, of it. I can't remember if I'm like missing just like a category of platforms. We ended up using Outvote, which is now Impactive. Um, which was a really terrific app for us on the relational side. We whitelisted that and it was called the Vote Joe app. And so we used that in the general election um, and we built a pretty you know, substantial relational you know, organizing effort. For people who don't know what that means, what, can you explain that? Yeah, so relational organizing is 
um, basically friend to friend or, or, you know, friend to family voter contact. So instead of having, instead of having a volunteer call um, a person who's on a targeted list and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, it's a cold call, basically. Instead of doing that, um, what they'll do instead is they'll call their friends and family. And they will call them and say, hey, mom, I'm calling because, or they're texting. They're, like, let's be real, they're texting. And they're saying, like, hey, mom, you voting for Joe? Um, need you to vote for Joe because X, Y, and Z. Or, hey, mom, did you get your ballot yet? Want to make sure you got your ballot, et cetera. And, you know, from testing, I think it's something like eight times more effective. I think like a, a phone call from somebody you know is eight times more effective than somebody that you don't know in terms of things like campaigns and elections. Relational organizing is becoming, um, you know, a more mainstream tactic that the campaigns are using. What we're seeing is that conversations that people are having are really actually impactful and they have an effect. So more so than just traditional forms of voter contact. Where were you election night, general election night? Um, general election night, I was in a, I was in a, I was in a boiler room with a few uh, senior staff on the campaign, um, and it was it was kind of kitty corner from city hall uh, in Philadelphia, um, which was you know around the other corner from where our office was based. Very interesting place to be. I mean, most of downtown Philly was boarded up at that time. There were protests in the street, et cetera. So that's where I was on election night. Not a lot to do on election night, as you know, every campaign staffer will usually tell you we were just sitting and waiting for results. So it was not close at all in the popular vote. It was exceptionally close, regrettably, in the electoral college vote. Not that many votes would have had to swing to tip it, even though Biden won more states than he needed to win. Were you clear that night? about how close it was? What was the general feeling in the campaign and you're part of it? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like I think, you know, how I am personally on most campaigns um, that I've been a part of, I'm tracking re- results on my own. I think, you know, all those years that I was at the D trip and working on congressional races, every primary, I was like, all right, I'm tracking the results on my own. I'm like figuring out what's left out, et cetera. Here's the big difference. On the presidential campaign, I had I like there was no way I was going to do that. There was no possible way that I could I could, um, you know, grasp what was happening. So I literally just sat back and, and waited for reports from the data department and, and our great analytics team who had an incredible view of what was happening on the race. I wasn't totally sure, but they they had been, you know, relaying confidence that that places like um, Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia all had lots of Democratic ballots that were outstanding that, you know, we thought, we thought, you know, initially like Arizona was looking, you know, good um, and that Georgia would be, you know, pretty close, et cetera. So, you know, we, we felt, and, and when I say we, I mean, you know, the really smart people in the analytics department were, were telling us that, you know, these are maybe not their words. This is a long time ago, but like cautiously optimistic and just patient. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff was very fluid in the days after the campaign. So, yeah, just cautiously optimistic is kind of how we were um, seeing the results, even though on election night, um, you know, Trump was up in a lot of these states. So Trump had started his stop the steal bullshit months and months before the election. How do you personally feel about what he did and is still doing in that area? Two clear things. I mean, number one, you know, this is voter suppression. They're trying to eliminate things like 
vote by mail, things that make it easy for people to vote, things that make it easy for for communities of color to vote. And they were consistently trying to undermine those methods of voting. Um, and and so that's that's you know thing number one, and, and which is to me very sick. Um, you know, the second thing is is um, you know undermining the election process in its entirety um, because a they're trying well because they're trying to set expectations low or pass blame onto something else in, in the event that they do lose. And it's just not good for our country to, to, to do that. So, I mean, generally speaking, like I, I feel not good about those, those kinds of efforts. And I think that's an understatement, but we, as, as Democrats, we have to make sure that we are, um, expanding voting rights, um, to the greatest possible degree that we are expanding vote methods to the greatest possible degree, um, that we are doing voter education they are always on their side going to try to confuse people and use confusion as a way to get people who are going to show up for Democrats not to vote. And so it puts a lot of onus on us and it puts a lot of responsibility on us. But I'm not surprised by it. These are the kind of things that Republicans do cycle in and cycle out. They play these games that, frankly, you know, try to get people to stay home. They play, you know, they play tricks. That's that's what they do because they don't have a better platform. They're not better people. Um, and when they can't get the votes that they need, they're going to use dirty tricks in order to do it. It just puts the onus on us again, time after time to do more on our campaigns, to be able to, to, to just have the people that we need to vote, vote. So I, I guess I, I find your answer almost distressingly mild in, in its reaction. I think that, that the the game that he played, working up to ginning up a mob to go into the Capitol, which is part of it, is nefarious and evil and, you know, diametrically opposed to what a leader in a democracy ought to do. It's still making me angry. And I hope that other people are at least angry enough at that for to be motivated because he's using it as a, as a cudgel against us. I understand why you answered the way you did, but I, I'm just still yeah. seething about it. Yeah, no, of course. And I was thinking about it more from the terms of like the voter suppression side of things and, yep. and the campaign side of things. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's called cheating, yeah. right? You know, it's, it's called it's called cheating. You're absolutely right. And and that's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind. But yeah, I mean, like we all have friends who and, and people that we know and care about that were in the building that day and and you know, organizing a coup is, I mean, it's incredibly, you know, distressing and incredibly disturbing. And there haven't really been yet too many negative consequences to the high up planners of it. And I hope they are yet to come, but um, absolutely, you did an interesting thing recently, as I understand it, you decided to hang up or hang out your own shingle, uh, started something with some odd three initial name, which I've done myself and, may, and maybe wasn't the best naming, but uh, what is BFD strategies? I did just want to take after you and start, you know, a three letter firm, but yeah, BFD strategies. Um, it's, it's an organizing firm. We do grassroots organizing um, and digital organizing. I started this about six months ago. Um, I wasn't sure kind of what banner I'd, I'd put it under. I kind of was infected by the name BFD Strategies because it, you know, it was connected to Biden. It was, it's connected to, you know, major accomplishment in 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 the Democratic space. And when Obamacare passed, and he said, "This is a BFD." Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right. 
Big field day. I forget. Big, yeah. Um, <laughs> big, big field day. No. Yeah. So, uh, so BFD, you know, our website says big fucking deal, um, on it. And, um, you know, at some point I was like, all right, let's just lean into it. Let's do this. Let's, let's make it fun. And that was something that I wanted to do with my firm. And as I hung my shingle, I wanted to have fun with it. Um, and you know, while it is serious and while we care a lot about the work that we do, you know, we, it's something that, that we wanted to have fun with. So we announced more publicly a couple months ago, we're working really hard on, on, you know, establishing our client base. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, as I started this, had a lot of really good, you know, friends and allies in the space that, you know, frankly, I thought would maybe be competitors. But when I reached out to them to talk to them about it, they said, yeah, it's a great idea. And, and, you know, not only do we think it's a good idea, but, you know, we'll help you and, and help you get, you know, your first few clients. And so I'm really grateful to a lot of the other consultants who are out there and in the space who helped us get work in our first year. And we're kind of off to the races now and it's been fun. So, yeah, I mean, you know, our firm, um, we are an organizing firm. Um, we specialize in field voter contacts. So, you know, we can put paid canvassers on the ground. We can help build and scale phones, text programs. But I'm also really interested in pushing things on the digital organizing side of things. Campaigns have had a lot of innovations on the digital organizing side that there are advocacy organizations and others who have not yet received the benefits of it. So, you know, an idea that I have is, is you know, I want to go in and work with advocacy organizations on organizing their memberships. And, you know, especially for the organizations that don't know how to interact with the millions of people that they have on their list, we can come in and bring in a couple tactics and a couple people and help them organize, engage and mobilize those people. And that's something that I really want to do, along with help, you know, bring relational organizing more front and square to both campaigns and advocacy organizations and and you know, whatever clients we work with, there's a lot that we can, you know, still learn from relational organizing. And I think there's a lot more that we can do on that note. And, you know, one of the really interesting things that, um, you know, we're working on and, and, you know, want to figure out is this concept of paid relational organizing. Because one of the biggest things that you have in relational organizing is, you know, volunteers are reaching out to people who are in their network, but their network doesn't always overlap with the targets that a campaign wants to reach. And so, you know, a couple campaigns have tried this. We did this a little bit on the Biden campaign, um, not to an incredibly high extent, but, you know, identifying people who are in the communities that you're trying to reach, paying them, training them, working with them to reach out to the people who are in their network um, is something that we really want to push the boundaries on. So, yeah, I mean, those are a few of the things that we're working on. You know, we're really excited to be in the space. And, you know, I, from, you know, personal perspective, you know, I, I, I love it. It's, kind of exactly what I wanted, where I get to work on, you know, a handful of different projects at a given time and use my expertise and work on things that I'm really passionate about. So, um, yeah. Who are some of those initial clients? You know, I can't advertise all of them because, you know, in a lot of cases, there's confidentiality stuff. But, you know, we did some we did some work on the Virginia elections last year, um, helping with paid canvas in Virginia for house races. We did some um, get out the vaccine work in partnership with Impactive, um, who is, you know, that that relational organizing app. They're actually an all-in-one organizing tool that does, you know, peer-to-peer dialer, um, relational social media sharing, et cetera. So uh, we did some work in partnership with them to do some get out of the vaccine work. We have, you know, a couple races that we're working on, down ballot races that we're supporting right now. Um, we're actually doing some candidate training internationally too with an organization out of Brazil. They've got a bunch of anti-Bolsonaro candidates that that they have identified and are training to run for office. So we're going down there and we're, we're, you know, coaching them on how to do voter contact programs and, and build organizing programs. That's kind of an interesting client. Those are just a couple of the inaugural folks um, on BFD's client list. So 
there are a fair number of firms that I think would, if you ask them, do you do grassroots organizing? Do you do digital organizing? Do you relational organizing? Would answer yes. There's smaller ones and bigger ones that are already existing out there on our side. How over the long run do you want to be different? How do you want your firm to be thought of over time? Yeah. And I'm glad that you asked that question because that's exactly the point. We are an organizing firm. We are not, you know, a paid field firm and we do do paid field. And um, there's a lot of respect for the work of paid field. But in a lot of cases, clients need an organizing approach, organizing strategy. And it is not just about paid canvas or uh, boots on the ground. It can be a lot of other elements of organizing. So how we want to be thought of, how I want to be thought of is anytime any client, any potential client needs anything that can even touch or think about organizing, we are the people that can help them think through organizing solutions. Maybe we are the company that helps them, or maybe we're the company that can recommend somebody else who's in the space that is more tailored to do what they they need exactly. But I want to be the first person that people call when they have to reach a group of people or when they have to organize a group of people and they need support in thinking through what are the methods that they're going to do to do that. That's what I want for, for this firm. I want it to be the first call people make when they need organizing support or voter contact support or reaching a community of any kind. So that's that's what I want people to think of. Doing any work with the DCCC where you used to work before? Yeah, absolutely. They've got a great team over there and um, I'm doing some work to help advise and and um, and working with them on their voter registration strategy. And, and you know, we'll see how things progress there. But uh, yeah, they're a great organization and very fortunate and lucky to be working with them right now. Some people who move out of the world of staffing in politics, working for organizations directly into consulting, uh, don't end up liking the running the business part of it. Other people really thrive on that. Um, where do you think you are? Yeah, um, I really like the questions about you know the starting of the business and the entrepreneurial parts of this. Because I do think that that's kind of, that's the new thing for me. Um, you know, as we're working with some of the campaigns and our clients, it's, it's, every campaign is different, of course, and every project is different. And I really enjoy the work that we do with our clients. But what I really like about running a business is you can, you can totally create your own strategy for how you do it, what you do for your marketing, what you do for your advertising, um, the kinds of partnerships that you build with, you know, other firms and potential colleagues, et cetera. It's kind of an open slate in terms of how you can set up your shop and what business you do and et cetera. And that's the thing that I really like about it. Um, I think the business development part is, honestly speaking, it's it's a challenge. It was challenging, especially in the first couple months as you're kind of facing, you know, the financial pressure of, of, of I'm starting a business and I'm not going to make any money on this until we start making money at this. There's a lot more pressure in the beginning to, to get your first clients. And you're probably going to take deals that you wouldn't have taken, you know, six months or a year into it because you need to get things moving. I think it's good from a perspective of, of both, you know, getting money into your firm, but also testing how you work with clients, um, et cetera, and what your systems are. But so I actually really enjoy the business development parts of it because, you know, what I find is I spend a lot of time on the phone catching up with people who have become my friends who are in the political space and letting them know what I do and offering my support in any way. You know, it doesn't actually have to be business, but letting them know that this is what I do now. And, you know, if they ever need 
a helping hand on anything, I'm, I'm here. And usually what it ends up being is, is then they or somebody that they know reaches out to us and, and they say, hey, um, we've got this project. We may need your help on it. Can you help? And so I've actually really you know, learned to enjoy like the business strategy, the business development. I hate the business operation side of it. Anything ops is like, I don't enjoy it. We're looking at ways to streamline all that stuff. So, Well, you can usually hire somebody to do pieces that aren't a good fit for you. Where are you in building a team so far? beyond yourself. Yeah. So we have one full-time person. She's kind of our full-time digital organizing person. So she's on. Who's that? Who is that? Her name is Alexis Hebert and she was our digital organizing director in uh, North Carolina. And, um, and uh, so we have one other full-time person, you know, we're looking at bringing on somebody for ops next, and then we're probably going to have to bring on another person to manage projects as well here shortly after. So we are scaling, um, which is exciting. And it's definitely a different position than we were in six months ago, where it was just making salaries work. So that's exciting for us. You know, a part of like the scaling conversation, though, too, is, you know, one of my strategies, you know, in building out this business was... You know, we're not going to, we're an organizing firm. And I already mentioned kind of my approach and what I want people to think of our business for. But what we get back in return for it is a lot of different projects that are completely different from each other. And some of these businesses that are strictly paid field or strictly mail or strictly digital ads or strictly whatever it is, it's easier to build systems and build teams that are tailored to systems. I wanted to kind of put ourselves out there um, a little bit more broadly and see what the market came back to us with. And, and the market has been pretty broad in what it's come back to us with. So it's kind of hard to say like, we need, you know, X person, X person, X person, X person. Um, so that's, you know, something that I'm thinking through as we scale, because right now what we need is, is project managers and people who are kind of senior level consultants to help manage programs, think through projects, um, et cetera. I, I had looked at your LinkedIn and your history of employment before talking to you. And one of the things that I noted was that you had managed a car wash for over a year. That is fairly distinct from politics in many ways, although there's a lot of grime in both. But I wonder if there were things that you picked up there that apply to this new business. Yeah, there's actually no difference between working in at a car wash in politics, none whatsoever. That's really funny that you that you mentioned that. Um, uh, yeah, I worked at a car wash um, when I was in college and just after college for a little bit. Um, it was actually a family business that my stepdad had started when I was like 18. And, you know, long story short, there's actually a little bit of a sad story. But my stepdad, who was running the car wash, he, he uh, you know, shortly after I graduated college, he um, had colon cancer and he, I had to go and manage the business and run the business. And he ended up passing away when I was 24. And, you know, I had to deal with, you know, with the closing of the business and a lot of like family financial matters, etc. So what I learned from that experience, and a lot of people who are friends and family who, you know, I was in talks with at the time, they're like, this is going to help you so much in the future, even though it's like hard right now, etc. And I didn't really I was kind of bitter at the time. And I was like, ah, you don't know that like, like, this is actually really sucks and I'm not getting my career started, et cetera. Very honestly speaking, I had kind of a crash course in what it's like running an organization. And I had a crash course in, in running an organization in crisis and managing a team in crisis, working with vendors in crisis and just crisis management. And when you're on campaigns, 
you're basically, maybe it's not a crisis, but the urgency that we put on campaign staffers to build organization in a short time frame, it can feel as though it's crisis. And so I think I had an experience to shoot from um, where I had managed something that was incredibly high consequence for for my family. And I had that experience early on. So I think it helped in being able to manage teams, manage the pressure uh, and and uh, manage high consequence things in politics. So I think that might have been the best question and answer of the interview, just from my own perch. But we'll see when we listen to it again. Um, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? I don't know. Probably, yes. Um, but I don't know what it is. Maybe like a favorite campaign moment, although now I'm going to have to think of the answer quickly. I don't know. What, what, is there something that you usually ask campaign people here? Uh, Kurt, is there a favorite campaign moment that you have? It's hard to say. One of the ones that I tell people from, you know, basically every time I give my personal story, but when I was an organizer on the Obama campaign, um, I just had the most fun I've ever had in my life. And I was in CU Boulder. Um, it was just after the car wash experience had kind of closed. My hometown, and, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go Buffs. Um, uh, which I did not go to school there, but um, but I can still say Go Buffs because I made a bunch of those students register to vote over the course of several months and got them to turn out. And it was really hard, but it was some of the most fun I've ever had. And I still, you know, from some of the friendships that I made, you know, with that team are still some of my really closest friends. And, um, and so that was really great. I think the most important thing, though, in emphasizing this story is I remember being in our, one of our regional offices on election night and watching the results come in. And, and Obama had won Colorado by like 160,000 votes. And I just thought that was the neatest thing ever because we had registered 130,000, or I'm getting the numbers mixed up. We had won by 130,000 votes, but we had registered 160,000 new Democrats to vote. And that for me was the moment where I was like, oh, we did this. If we hadn't registered those voters, if we hadn't persuaded, turned out those voters, we may have not won in Colorado. And you look at the margins across all the battleground states, they were thin. And so that was the moment for me where I was like, oh, actually, this is work that makes a difference. And, and that was kind of the moment where my career and what I wanted to do kept being campaigns. And that's when I knew that that's how I wanted to, you know, make my contribution to the space. So I'm glad we took the time to get that anecdote out there. That's nice. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, anything else you want to say? Absolutely. Uh, let me know anytime you ever want to chat. Um, always, always, always a friend of the great battlefield podcast and, and, um, love your work and, uh, yeah, let's let's get a beer sometime. Okay, I, I'm up for it. That was Kurt Bagley. He's at bfdstrategies.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.